Ameda Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. That's wit.fm. As technology continues to be an important driving force in many industries, we still see a lack of representation from various minority groups. Having diverse teams building technologies that impact all of us is important to account for different perspectives or things that we otherwise wouldn't have thought of. Robin Maxke, a Native American technology activist and a software engineer, talked about growing up in an Indian reservation in the United States and her path to a career in technology. We also talked about her work running the first national Native American collegiate hackathon. Robin also explained different ways in which companies can be more inclusive. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to invite you to check out our latest podcast, The Five Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you will get advice from prominent writers, engineers, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Five Minute Mentor. Thank you. So today I have with me Robin Maxke, and we're going to be talking about centering indigenous women in tech. So hi, my name is Robin Maxke. I'm Stockbridge Mohican Muncie, graduate of Diné College and Salish Kootenai, two tribal colleges, and I'm the director of the first national American Indian hackathon. And just I will be using the term American Indian and indigenous interchangeably. We can get into that a little more later. So today we're gonna talk about your work in promoting tech in indigenous communities, specifically here in the United States. Indigenous communities exist around the world. I'm from Mexico and we have indigenous communities. So I hope that some of the things that we discuss here can be applied to communities around the world. I know Grace Hopper is an international audience. So first I want to begin with some context and specifically of indigenous communities in the United States. Can you give an overview of this? So there's 573 federally recognized tribes, at least the last time I checked, which was like two months ago. Um, there's 172 federally recognized reservations in the US and they're incredibly diverse. I think there's this idea that we tend to be this monolith of like feathers and headdresses and each reservation has a very specific either issues that they're facing or different cultures that are going on. And then tribes themselves, if they don't have a reservation, are dealing with this as well. And you grew up in a reservation, right? Yeah, so my reservation is in Wisconsin, but I've also lived on the Navajo Nation for a chunk of time, and I've lived on Flathead Reservation, and each one of those is dramatically different. To give you an idea, the Navajo Nation is larger than the state of Delaware, whereas my reservation, we didn't have paved roads growing up, and now it's paved roads and less natives live on the reservation than non-natives and we've been pushed off of that area and then flat has access to everything except for this bubble of where the natives specifically live can you talk about i know you just mentioned some reservations have paved roads and others have more resources what are some resources that some reservations don't have access to well a lot of reservations and again this is dramatically different if you're looking at the shakopee 
you know, they're going to have, they have a lot of different things going on because they have a lot of different funding. The Navajo Nation, this year alone, 15,000 homes got electricity for the first time. Growing up, we had a hall water on my reservation, and this was in the 90s. And so, again, it's dramatically different. There's so many. It depends on what area you're looking at, and it also depends on what jurisdiction they fall under. Because one of the things people don't realize about reservations is we're sort of beholden to not only the BIA, which is Bureau of Indian Affairs, we also have to deal with state level things and then we also have to deal with tribal level things and then what complicates it further as far as getting electricity and utilities and stuff like this is not just lack of infrastructure but we hold most of reservations hold the land in trust there's this idea that we actually own our land we don't we hold it in trust from the government which is why if you go on a reservation you often won't see banks built on there, sorry to like jump completely from this, but I think this is an important idea. So most reservations, the rule is that you only own the first three inches of soil. So you can't mortgage your home if you build it there. You can't do this, and a lot of companies are reluctant to do business with us because of this, and it's a trickle-down effect. People are not gonna invest within the community. If we invest, we're not gonna see any output, and that just furthers this the fact that we're on reservations to begin with is a really frustrating thing and that furthers it. Yeah, and the reason I asked about you know resources and current context of it is because like one of the things you mentioned is 15,000 people just got electricity now and then we're here at a tech conference, a lot of our nice gadgets use electricity, so that will have an impact, right, in getting people on board with technology. Before we move forward with that, I just wanted to ask in, in terms of the level of education of sort of what people work on at these reservations. Again, it's dramatically different depending on the reservation, but for the most part, to give you an idea, we weren't allowed to have tribal colleges until 1968, and that's when Diné College, Salish Kootenai were allowed, and that was the first time tribes could control their own education. Prior to that, we were under BIE, which is Bureau of Indian Education. So again, we're having all of this falls under, we're responding to so many different things that it hasn't really caught up and this digital divide just keeps widening and widening as we're still trying to get basic infrastructure on reservations. And one of the highlights, I would say, when I was researching for this interview and you know, I read about you is, like you said, decide to go to college and then you choose to go to a tribal college. And I think that experience is important and it also translates well to you know, our whole situation here of like, you can't be what you can't see, and you know, it's nice working and talking with people that are similar to you and you know, have diverse perspectives. Can you talk about that experience and that choice of going to that tribal college? What impact did that have on you? Going to a tribal college was, well, even getting there in the first place. So my mom has her GED, and that's sort of the highest level of education. But the great thing, I grew up in the era of the internet. So I was able, I would sit at the public library. Most of the time I was like on Club Penguin and stuff, but every so often I would do something that had utility. And the thing is, it opens up these doors. It's oftentimes though, I didn't understand how to get from A to B, and that's what was heavily missing, because it's like, I remember somebody commenting on a blog that I had. They were like, if you're serious about this, you would go to college. And and so it's like the idea of college, but how do I get there? And when I went to a trial, and there was also, I was kind of fearful of going to college because of just how my experience, I spent part of high school at a non-reservation school and it's, 
for somebody who grew up on a reservation, that was really frustrating because it was like, first of all, our mascot was really offensive and then everyone had certain ideas. And so I'm not just going to school as a student. I become an ambassador for all natives. I'm expected to be a historian. I'm expected to be a professor. And this wears on you because I don't know. Like people would tell me things and it's like, oh, I don't know this. And then I would feel ashamed. And so the idea of college, I just didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel like I could do this. And it's like, I'm looking around. It's like all these people are going to college and I can't do this simple thing. I didn't know how. And if it wasn't for the internet and literally Googling how to go to college, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> yeah. And at this college, you went to Diné College. Were most of your professors Native American or? It was the first time I met a Native American that had a PhD. I had met a medical doctor prior to that, but I never met a doctor who was Native and that was so empowering. And I don't think people realize what it's like to see somebody who, and we weren't even the same tribe, but it's a sense of like, oh, whoa, this is actually possible. It was really empowering for me. And you're also working out a lot of other things when you go to a tribal college because now that you don't have this burden of being the lone native and this ambassador, you get to focus on your studies. And then also at college, you're surrounded by resources. And I don't think, or at least that never registered to me that suddenly, wait, I don't have to just go to school to get this thing that I need to get a job. I can go to school to learn and I can go to school to see what I'm good at. And I think those are a lot of privileges that sometimes people might not realize that they have. Exactly. I want to talk now about how you got into technology. You're mentioning you're pretty much Googling everything, how to go to college and that kind of stuff. In terms of uh, programming and learning the code, can you talk about that experience? Because I think it's, it's very interesting. So again, I would sit at the library and I was really lucky that my reservation had a library. I should clarify that because not every reservation has one. We had a library and they used to have these like hour limits on your computer. And I was like eight or nine and I definitely needed more time for Club Penguin. And so I remember just like clicking around and I realized like, and somehow I was able to turn it off. We're talking, this is just a simple like command, but it's so empowering as like an eight or nine year old when you realize I can tell a computer what to do. And then, I don't know, maybe a few years later is when I started, that was the whole like live journal, dead journal, blurty WordPress era. And so of course you have to learn HTML because you need your blog to be sparkly. And you don't realize that you're coding, but that's how I start. And I never, cause I never thought of myself as a, like it literally wasn't until years later, I was already in college and I was interning for this amazing woman, Dr. Shirley McBay, who if you haven't heard of her, she runs Quality Education for Minorities in DC. Not to plug this, I just think she's an incredible person. And I was super arrogant and I remember being, because we had to pick a project to do that summer and you're pulling research. So it had to be a project where you're pulling research and presenting this to a group of peers and everyone was pulling research that was available and for tribal colleges, there wasn't enough data. So that meant it was extra work for me, but I was like, I can do this, I can do this. And then I realized, oh my gosh, like I don't have, like I'm gonna have to pull all this data myself. And so I just coded an aggregator and we're talking a simple like web crawler in Python. And she was like, what are you doing? And I'm thinking I'm getting fired because I'm too lazy to pull. Because the thing is, this with a lot of indigenous stuff or with a lot of underserved communities, part of the problem why people are not 
able to even get grants for it is there isn't research that sets that base. And so it's the cyclic problem of like, you don't have the research, you don't have the, well, you don't have the data, so you can do research off of this, you can't, and it creates this long list of things where people are like, I'm gonna focus on this other group that already has this research available. But I remember she was like, why aren't you in tech? And I was just thinking like, well, I learned Python from the internet. Like, I'm not doing anything that's that interesting. And I didn't think it was like some special, like everyone can do Ruby, like if you have enough time <laughs> and enough patience. And so yeah, that's, it really was sort of this like just development, but I, I credit blogs and I credit the whole HTML and then JavaScript when you want things to move. And <laughs> that era. Yeah, definitely. So you're saying like motivated by the blog you were doing, you were like wanted to make it look better. Can you talk about what this blog was about? So initially, just these angsty teen blogs, like it wasn't really anything. And again, at this time, we're talking this is like the mid knots or like, you know, 2003, 2004. So I mean, you're aware that there are other people on the internet, but maybe it was because I was just a really self-absorbed teen. I wasn't really aware that these are like complete strangers. I'm just more venting and it's there and it's kind of exciting that it's out there. But as I started getting older and especially like, I remember around 15, I was blogging a lot about blood quantum, which is a huge issue within indigenous communities and blood quantum affects my tribe specifically. There's less than 600 of us and it affects all, almost all tribes that use blood quantum. And just to give you a quick, I won't spend this talk on it, but blood quantum itself is a system that defines who's native or who's not, but it's based on this unsustainable system that every generation it essentially has. And it also reduces your culture to nothing more than a number. It's really problematic. And for somebody growing up where I was told things like, oh, look at you, you're reading, you're trying to be white, which is so self-defeating. As I'm older, I understand where this comes from. But at the time, I was having this like identity crisis of like, oh, well, I'm not native enough, but then I leave the res and I'm way too native. And I think a lot of, at least I and some of my friends have talked about this, we deal with we're either too native or we're not native enough. And the internet, I could be anything. And I spent my blogs heavily ranting about blood quantum and this, but also because I was an early adopter to a lot of like Blurdy and WordPress, I would have like Native American dot Tumblr. So I would end up, I don't think people were like necessarily wanting to read my stuff so much as I just happened to have an, like a really good domain that like people would land on. And it's like, what is she writing about? <laughs> and were you, did you connect with some people through the blog or, or did they influence you in any way to pursue you know, a career in college? Yeah, well, again, it was that one comment where, you know, most of the time it was comments like, stop scrolling your text or things like that. But then it, would, it was a comment where a person was like, if you're serious, because again, I kept writing about blood quantum. And it was a comment where if you're serious about changing things, you would go to school. And it's those small things, somebody telling you you're a good person or somebody telling you you're smart. And those have such a lasting impact. And somebody telling me to go to school and I, I mean, I had heard go to school as a kid when I was like in kindergarten and I didn't want to go to school, but I had never been told like, hey, like this is good writing or this is, you can pursue something. And I remember that sort of, and I don't know who commented. I don't know who that was. I always wonder if it was like my mom or something. <laughs> but Yeah, and it, it's also ties to the other comment that you got later of like, you're building the Python crawler and somebody finds it valuable and you, might not be even aware of the skills that you have until somebody points them out. Yeah. I want to talk now about equitable practices 
And one of the things I want to begin with is that you directed the first National American Indian College Hackathon, which I think is great, so congrats on doing that initiative. So I want to get your perspective on some of the main things that you learned by you know, deciding to take this on. What were some of the main challenges that you encountered? Well, I think the same challenges I faced with this are the same challenges I would run into with grants or funding. If there's not research available or that benchmark, it is really frustrating to get something started. And so with the hackathon, I remember for like two years, I had this proposal and I went to different organizations and a lot of them were indigenous focused. And I went to certain tech companies and I was basically told, like one specifically verbatim said, there isn't a market for natives in tech. And that's really because I couldn't prove, like I couldn't have this and oh, well this has happened before. And it, that's really frustrating because how would you know this? It, it's that same issue people face when they're applying for jobs and it's you need this much work experience and it's like but it's an entry-level position how do i get this experience if i don't have it and so that was one of the biggest things that and it was also just discouraging like on some level but i think i was so bullheaded about this you know that and then also i lucked out i had a larger platform because there are a lot of other people that's the thing i'm very lucky but i'm just i'm not any sort of unicorn. There are so many people back on the res doing the same exact stuff, even more dedicated to it. And I just happen to luck out with this sort of platform. But for whatever reason, we're not shown in spaces. We're not given space. And so it oftentimes falls on like, oh, well, this happened, but it's a fluke when it's like, no, there are a lot of people doing really cool stuff out there. It's just not getting picked up by the media. It's not it's just not getting that same sort of representation that other events get. Yes, definitely. And before doing this talk, we actually had a conversation about it. And I thought it was very interesting that you point out some things that might not be too obvious, like use certain type of words that you use, like hackathon or workshop. Can you talk about some of those aspects in terms of organizing this hackathon, just the language being used? Yeah, and that even goes back to the whole indigenous American Indian native thing. And why earlier I said that is I'm trying to personally just make the move to use the term indigenous. My vernacular when I'm back home on the res, we tend to say Indian a lot. And but it's all of these words can essentially leave out whole groups. And same thing with hackathon. So the first hackathon that went off, that, that was just a learning experience, <laughs> hopefully. There was a case study done on it, but it was one of those things where there were a lot of things I didn't expect. And I think that's, I'm learning that's normal. But what would happen later, like after, because after the first one went off, then I was able to get a lot more like colleges to agree to let us have them or community centers agree to let us do these hackathons. And I would often like have food there because I wouldn't, you know, it's a way to trick people into like come to this hackathon. And I remember one time we put one on at, it was at the community center at Salish Kootenai and no one showed up. And I asked some friends, I was like, there was free food, you didn't have to code. Like you could have, and they were just like, well, I don't know, I didn't like the word hackathon. And that was such good criticism and it was such a good point to make because I grew up on the internet and things like that. I didn't realize like how ostracizing the term hackathon would be. And some people were just flat out, the word itself wasn't very inclusive of certain groups. And same thing with, I used workshop and I wasn't getting a lot of people coming to it. And I asked someone and they're like, well, it just sounded like work. And it was like, okay, 
and you could look at those situations like, well, I want people who want to work, or I want this, but it's, no, if you're coming into a community, you, it's on you to communicate effectively to the community and meet them where you're at. And that also goes along with now a lot of the like labs or workshops or hackathons, instead of going in there with an already set agenda of like, this is what we're going to do. The first thing that I ask is, what are you guys interested in? Because oftentimes that's, for me, that's how I got interested in tech, I feel like, because it was my interest that I'm putting out there. And so giving that opportunity to other people who, because coding itself is not really, it's, it's just a tool. And so what do you want to do with it? And with a lot of communities, I feel like I've gotten a lot a lot better feedback when we go in and it's like, what are you interested in doing? And there's some brilliant students who are like, well, I want to work on an app for missing and murdered indigenous women. And they'd never coded before, but that's where mentors and people who know how to code can come in and do this. They have the idea, they're learning it along the way, but you're just helping them create something that can not only make a difference to them, but it's also something that they're invested in, that they're gonna follow through, and that they're gonna wanna look, work on. And I feel like those students are usually the ones that I'll see at more hackathons later on or workshops or labs. So that's really good because I've also seen something similar with you know getting little kids to code where I was talking to somebody and she's like it doesn't really work if I show up and like we're gonna make this video game or we're gonna make a online store they want to work on their own ideas and it's similar to you you were motivated by making your blog prettier more functional so it's it's the same with this so I think it's an important thing to take note of when you know, if people here, you know, are working at hackathons and doing social work, helping out, just think about that and try to engage with, with the people and see what drives them and, you know, just let them know they can build their ideas. And one of the other things I want to touch on is, so you're talking about this hackathons and how, you know, some of the people are very driven to to build things related to their communities. And this is one of the things you advocate a lot of is, not just have uh, indigenous people learn to code and then you know they they go on to another city and get a job probably a big city can you talk a bit about this thoughts that you have where they stay in the reservation and just sort of work there so brain drain isn't a concept that's just specific to indigenous people in the u.s it's to a lot of underserved communities and by brain drain i mean you have people that are getting because you're told get an education you get an education you come back to the reservation or your community and you can't use that education or there aren't jobs readily available there is an infrastructure there and that can sort of be self-defeating but it's also on a larger level what would this is amazing talent that's leaving the reservation how do we get them involved and that tech is great because this is creating new opportunities but we still haven't caught up with the amount of people who are getting invested in this and how this can be used on reservations and again that is not something that's specific i've seen this in a lot of underserved communities where i wouldn't say it prevents them from going to college but it usually creates this hesitancy of like why go like i'm not going to be able to get a job out here or do anything with it and we want to sort of meet people like before they even get that in their head. And it's like, wait, no, with this, you can go wherever you want and you're still part of your community. But that, I don't know, this starts getting into more like, at least for me, I think this is more like reservation politics of like mm -hmm. leaving the res and coming back. And just in general, from your experience, you know, doing this hackathon and learning how to code and growing up in a reservation, are there 
some general thoughts or strategies that you know you wish tech companies would know about? Again, sometimes, I, well, I'll get the question a lot, and what, I remember this really large tech company asked, they had this great internship, and it was going on, and it was paid, it was 10 weeks, and they're like, we weren't getting any students applying that were from tribal colleges. And I was like, well, where did you advertise? And they're like, New York and LA. <laughs> and that's sort of the problem. It's like, and I get that, like, People are now realizing, like, wait, there's indigenous people out there. How do we get them involved? But they often don't know where to meet us. But then also sometimes I don't think they're really thinking about it because if you're thinking solely New York and L.A., yeah, there are natives everywhere. There are 37 tribal colleges. If, you're look, if you have a college internship, start there or start within the communities. Don't expect... I think you have to meet us midway, and that's even when you're doing hackathons or workshops. It's meeting people... I would say even more than halfway because you're offering, there's this idea that, oh, these people have never been offered something and I'm giving them this great opportunity. No, you're also getting in exchange indigenous knowledge, indigenous perspective. We're giving you something by being part of this internship and treating that and respecting that I think is really important. I think there's there's a lot of things that go into meeting people midway and also creating, like opening that door. Okay, so you have this internship and it's for Native students. What is the student getting out of this? How is this going back to their community? How is this helping them out? Is it centered around them? That's also a really important question. And I think sometimes just because you're wanting more Natives there, what is the incentive for them? To, and money isn't an incentive. It's not the only incentive. It's what is going back to their culture. Why is it so important for you to have a Native student? I know at least me personally, sometimes I wonder if I'm part of something, is it solely so people can have me like on a picture on their mantle, like I talk to this Native student? And that's really frustrating. And I think a lot of us grow up being used as props and we want to avoid that. Exactly. And the other thing I would add to that is, sure, you're being more empathetic about where they're coming from, their communities and recruiting there, but also, Following up, like, is your company, you know, an inclusive workplace to be at? Are they going to follow up, you know, if there are some issues? Like you mentioned, when you were not in the tribal college, you, you felt, you know, a little isolated, it sounds like. And so that would be another thing that I would add to that, right? What would be some useful resources for people, you know, that want to read more about this? Well, right now, National Science Foundation has partnered with ACES, the American Indian Science Engineering Society, and they're doing these convenings on computer science in the U.S., but it's much larger than computer science. They're talking about infrastructure building. They have another one that's upcoming within two weeks. Because this is such a new thing, they had their first one back in March, and I haven't seen the research that has come out of that, but it has been so empowering just to see and hear what's going on within this, that would be my first go-to at the moment right now because I haven't heard of any other group on a larger level pulling in so many, not just K through 12 and not just post-secondary education and not, they're pulling in different grassroots activists that are working on tech policy, science communicators, which is also another really important part and aspect of getting people involved in education, as well as advocating for funding for tech and communities. Another good resource. Well, I think looking at larger, because we're still not like fully represented, I think, within the tech community. So it's looking at indigenous organizations, whether that's American Indian College Fund, which 
puts out. It sounds solely like a scholarship organization, but they also put out specific research geared at students. Looking at tribal colleges in AHEC, American Indian Higher Education Consortium, that's a really important group because they're sort of creating the measures and metrics of like success because oftentimes this has been defined by mainstream institutions, which do not take into account our diverse populations. Another good resource I know I'm missing so many, but I would say ACES, AHEC, NSF, and their TCUP, which is Tribal College University Program, right now are my go-tos when I'm looking at like what areas can I focus on or what areas can I like somehow like insert myself in because I'm nosy and also because I genuinely care about about this. Like it changed, it helped me out so much. And I all it took was just, oh, like I'm good at tech oh, I didn't know people like me belonged in tech. And it was having somebody say that. So those are all really helpful. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make sure I include those resources that you listed. Robin, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to come on the show. It's been great talking to you and learning about Native American communities. Thank you. Thank you.